in the big picture, kind of getting all the things that we need um, to kind of give us the foundation that we need to actually get into the Bible and to interpret it, all right? So let's go ahead and uh, go to the Lord in prayer, and then we will dive in. Heavenly Father, you are good, and you are good to us. And so, Lord, we come together as your children, as brothers and sisters, as a family, and we praise your name for your goodness to us. We praise your name for all the evidences of your grace and your glory and your kindness that we have experienced in our lives. Lord, we go to your word because your word gives us life. We go to your word because your word is a light into our path um, as we walk through these days that are so dark. And so, Lord, we pray that you would let us see that light, as that lamp, as brightly as possible. God, open up our eyes, open up our ears to see that which your word tells us is spiritually discerned. Let us not just read your word, but love your word. Let us get from it as much as we can. Help us grow as students of the word. Help us to grow in our knowledge of the word. Help us to grow in our application and obedience to the word. Lord, Pray, we pray tonight that you would just increase our delight, and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you all for coming. So tonight, we're going to ask the question, or try to answer the question, what determines the meaning of the text? What determines the meaning of the text? When we come to communication, there is always three basic components to communication. Again, I, I've given you notes so that you can... Kind of walk with me, write on them, keep them, burn them, whatever you want to do with them. They're, they are your, yours. So um, when we come to communication, whether it's written communication or it's spoken communication, there are essentially always the same three components that are in every, uh, every bit of communication that we read, speak, hear, or write. All right. So the first component of, of communication would be the author. Or the speaker. These are the people that are writing down the words or speaking out the words. These are the people from which the words originate. Secondly, we have the text itself. We actually have the words that were spoken. We actually have the words that were written down. The words that we are hearing. The words that we are reading. Finally, we have the reader. We have the listener. So you have these three components in all communication. And we, you know this intuitively, you've just maybe never broken it down in your mind like this, right? So you have the text, or you have the, the author, you have the text, you have the reader. Those three components are in all areas of communication. And so the question that we have before us tonight is which one of those components determines what the text means? Is it the author that determines what the text means? Is it the text itself that determines what it means? Or is it the reader, the listener, the receiver that determines what the text means? Now, you might be thinking, this seems obvious. And I believe that it is pretty obvious. But it is also of incredibly great consequence. And this is at the forefront of interpretive questions in our day. This is at the forefront, in fact, not just in how we interpret our Bible, but as I want to show you later on, even how we interpret our Constitution. All right, so I've, I've printed out an article that we can start with today to kind of illustrate to you the importance of what we're learning. Do you guys need a seat? I'm sorry, the only thing I see available is right here in the splash zone. All right, come on down. 
No, you're fine. You're not bothering us. If I spit, it's, it's on you, though. And I am a spitter. All right. All right, so we have this article that was written by a, a New York Times best-selling author, uh, a guy that really is quite a beautiful writer. And as you read it, it's very eloquently written. It's very kindly written. It's very thoughtfully written in a lot of ways. But you can see what the subject matter is there at the top. Would Jesus be okay with homosexual marriage? Now, he's going to make a case that is the opposite of what we believe. He is going to make a case and try to make that case from the Bible itself that Jesus is, in fact, okay with homosexual marriage. And so this gives us a living, breathing example of why it matters who determines the meaning of the text. All right, so as he starts off, I've, you, you can see some of my, my notes in there. All right, now think about what he's saying. All right, in that, that second paragraph right there, he says, Even Christians who once stood uniformly against same-sex marriage have become more comfortable with the idea, and one by one, mainstream churches have begun to reconsider it. You can remember last week we talked about mainstream churches and how they're collapsing and dying as they forsake the Bible, right? He says, One thinks back to those five little words of Pope Francis that Pope Francis uttered in 2013, spoken casually on a plane fr- plane plane flight one evening when reporters asked about his attitude toward gays. Who am I to judge? Now, right out of the gate, we see two very important literary features here, right? All right, so right there, he says that Christians are becoming more uh, more receptive to the idea of homosexual marriage and that mainstream churches have themselves begun to reconsider it. So what does that mean that mainstream churches believe about the Bible? That means that these mainstream churches that are rethinking their position on homosexuality and rethinking their interpretation of the Bible's teachings on homosexuality, that means that they believe that the Bible can grow and evolve with time, right? That what the Bible meant 500 years ago and what was a good and right and appropriate interpretation of the Bible 500 years ago isn't necessarily a good and right and proper Bible interpretation today. That the Bible has an ability to adapt and to grow as morality evolves. That as the morality of culture and the morality of society changes and evolves and shifts and what they would consider matures, that the Bible itself is able to shift and evolve and grow and mature, right? That the Bible is a living, breathing book that evolves over time with its principles. So that's feature number one in that first par- or that second paragraph. Then he even goes so far as to quote Jesus from the Pope. Like, you want to say something to the Christian world, let quote the Pope quoting Jesus, right? Like, That's about as good as it gets, right? So he has Jesus with that quote that all of us have so often heard thrown by, who am I to judge? And so he is saying here, I've got authority to say what I'm saying. I'm saying something that the Pope seems to agree with. I'm saying something that I think Jesus would back me up on. And this is what people do in arguments and conversations about that, this, this kind of thing. If you ever talk with somebody about that, right? They bring in the Pope. They bring in Jesus. They bring in all of the authority that they can to kind of have it on their side, right? All right, now skip down. You're going to see him do this yet again. 
because this is what you do when you're making a case. You'll see the next place I have the highlight and the, the words in red. It says, only a week ago, former president Jimmy Carter, who is who, a lifelong Baptist and a Sunday school teacher, spoke out for gay rights at, col- at, at a college in Michigan. I never knew of any word or action of Jesus Christ that discriminated against anyone, Carter said, provoking huge applause. Now, why does he point out here that Carter is a Baptist? Because it would be assumed by the reader that a Baptist is an opponent of his view, right? It would be, uh, it would be assumed that a Baptist person, a, a Baptist theologian, a Baptist congregant, would be known to be more conservative in their approach to the Bible. And so it would be assumed that they would believe that homosexual marriage is wrong. So he's bringing in Jimmy Carter, who is now, he's, so he's putting Jimmy Carter out that, there as being kind of an enlightened Baptist, right? You see? That, that Jimmy Carter, this is, this is our moral president, right? This is our Christian president. And even he thinks that homosexual marriage is okay. Now, this is when it starts really getting squirrely, all right? At the very last, there's one sentence left on that first page. He says, much of the opposition to homosexuality among Christians over the centuries can be traced to the letters of Paul, the apostle, who also had difficulty with women. Although I do believe that in context, Paul's attitudes are more, more complex than many assume. It's important to remember, though, that he was raised an Orthodox Jew, a Pharisee by training, and there was a strong prohibition against homosexual acts and many strains of Judaism, as in Leviticus 20, 13. Now, you remember a couple of weeks ago when I was explaining to you how they understand liberalism and, and how they understand the Bible, right? That what they think they have to do is redeem it, that they have to hold it up, right? So, so he's saying, well, a lot of the problem is not with Jesus. Everybody loves Jesus. The problem is with these guys like Paul. And so Paul, bless his heart, he just wasn't as enlightened as Jesus. And Paul, bless his heart, he had trouble with women and with the gays. Like, Paul is a bit of a bigot. Like, Paul tried hard, Paul worked hard, but Paul was really a product of his culture. Paul was really a product of his upbringing. And so we kind of have to help Paul along here. We kind of have to help Paul come into the 21st century We kind of have to help Paul's moral ethic develop and evolve and mature, right? So he's saying, don't blame Paul. Blame his background. Cut this poor, ignorant fool a little bit of slack. Like, like just lay it easy on Paul. In the context, you might have been the exact same way. So again, he's saying that the Bible is living and breathing. The Bible is certainly not inerrant. The Bible is certainly not without flaw. That the Bible, though it has helpful principles and has helpful truths, is in fact something that now needs to be brought up and made relevant in our day. Made to adapt to our day. Now he gets to the real question, right? So what did Jesus think about homosexuality? or sexuality itself, for that matter. Now turn to Matthew chapter 19, so that you can see the passage in its totality that he is referencing. And what I want you, to, what we're going to see here is what this guy does, is he actually tries to take hermeneutics, remember hermeneutics are those principles that we're learning in this class, Hermeneutics are principles used for interpreting the Bible. That's all that means. Principles used for interpreting the Bible. 
And so this cat is going to take hermeneutics, those principles used for interpreting the Bible, and he's going to try to flip the table on us and use hermeneutics against us to show that Jesus was pro-homosexual marriage. All right? All right, so in Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, God's word says, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to to receive this, receive it. Do you guys see the case that he's going to make here? The case that he's going to make here is that when Jesus says that there are some eunuchs that are eunuchs by birth, that those that Jesus was in fact trying to use a culturally relevant term to talk about those who were born as homosexuals. And so, because Jesus was trying to use a term that was culturally relevant, that he said eunuch, he meant homosexual, which shows Jesus as affirming, believing, and understanding, and being okay with the homosexual lifestyle. Now, what is he doing here? Listen to how he explains this. He says, you'll see that that next paragraph where I have highlighting in red. He says, but it's important to see these words of Jesus about divorce in context too, especially in the context of gays. Now, do you remember what I told you one of the most important things is when we come to study the Bible? It's understanding the Bible in context, right? That that is as basic and fundamental and elementary of a, of a biblical uh, a hermeneutical principle as you're going to find. That's as basic an interpretive principle as there's going to be. That you need to understand the Bible in context. But in context of what? In context of culture? In context of what the world says? In context of what feels right? Or in context of what it's saying in the broader picture of the Bible. Of course, we would all say in context of, what, of the broader picture of what it's saying in the Bible, right? But what does he say? He says about divorce in context too, especially in context of gays. In context of the culture. That we need to understand what the context of the culture, right? Alright, so he says, In fact, Jesus went on to comment on his own teaching when questioned further. Not everyone can accept this teaching, but only to those to whom it is given. For there are you from birth and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven let anyone accept this who can now it sounds good when he appeals to context us right it sounds good 
And it would be easy for us to read this and, and start questioning everything we've ever believed. Because this guy is eloquent. And this guy is persuasive. And this guy is, is bringing in the Bible. Now, he's going to turn it up a notch. He's going to turn it up a notch. And he's going to try to, to leverage a, le- a level of, 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 of scholarship in academia that intimidates a lot of people and causes them to back away and say, he is so much smarter than me, his way must be right and my way must be wrong. All right? Listen to what he does right here. So what is a eunuch? In Greek, the work is eunuchos, and it occurs eight times in the Greek scriptures. The word usually refers to castrated men, but it has many meanings, and one of them is an ineffectual, powerless, or unmasculine man. Now, when he starts talking Greek, most of us start backing down, right? We think, this is a guy that's of next level. Now, if you were to take and you were to look up all of those references to eunuch in the Bible, he's right, that is the number of times that word is used in the Bible. And yet, every single one of them fit the definition of a castrated man, usually in the kingdom, the, the court of the king, right? But then he goes on, he says, sometimes... Sometimes it can mean an ineffectual, powerless, or unmasculine man, which seems to hold up his, his idea here, right? And do you know where he got that definition? www.thefreedictionary.com Man, he made that switch shift quick, didn't he? He went from talking Greek to talking www.thefreedictionary.com If you look up that definition, that's where you get that definition at. If you do the research, right? But he makes the shift so quick that you can't pick up on it. Because, like, that's the same, right? Greek lexicon, www.thefreedictionary.com. Those are the same, right? But he makes that shift so quick that if you're not nimble, if you're not thinking, if you don't know, it can deceive you. See, understanding the Bible, interpreting the Bible, knowing how to study the Bible is of the utmost importance. He says, so a eunuch was, in some instances, a gay man. If I read correctly what Jesus says, and you don't, bro. If I read correctly what Jesus says about eunuchs who have been so from birth, he may well refer to this sort of person. Certainly, there has been a lot of discussion of this topic among gay Christians. So now what does he say? All right, do you remember what he said in the beginning? In the beginning, he talked about how mainline churches were were shifting their interpretation of the Bible. How they were saying that, that the Bible itself was living and evolving and growing. Now he's saying that the reader can interpret the, the, the meaning of the text, right? Certainly there has been a lot of discussion of this topic among gay Christians. Now let me ask you. If anybody in the world needs the Bible to say that homosexuality is okay, who is it? Gay Christians, right? Or gay Christians. So, th- so maybe they have a bit of agenda when they come to the text. Now, let's be slow to judge because sometimes we go to the text with agenda too. But, but, but maybe they have agenda when they go, go there. But now he's saying, well, well, that's what they're talking about. That's how they're interpreting the Bible. That's how they're understanding the Bible. So now it's the reader assigning the meaning to the text. You see, what we're doing here matters. What we're doing here matters, and it matters how we understand our culture. It matters how we understand the Bible. It matters when we, when we come in and we read things like that in, in kind of the more um, mainline culture, the mainstream culture. Like, those kinds of things matter. And it matters that we know them so that we can teach them to our teenagers. 
and so that we can teach them to our college students. And so that we ourselves don't have moments in which we have a crisis of faith as we think we believe something all of our life or, or, or have come even recently to really uphold the Bible. And then we, we hear what sounds like expert advice come in and seem to undermine it. And like we've got to be able to stand firm and know that what the Word of God says is trustworthy. To know what the Word of God says is authoritative and to know how to in fact defend the Word of God. So... Go back to those components. We have author, we have the text, and we have the, uh, the, the reader, the, the receiver of the text. Now, I'm going to make the case very, very strong, or as strong as I'm able, that it is the author that, inter- that assigns the meaning to the text. That the person who writes the text, the person who speaks the text, the one who is the, the originator of the words is the one who assigns the meaning to the text. But I'm going to go through the other two the other two forms of interpretation before I get there and try to show you maybe some of the problems that are wrong with it. All right, so first let's look at the text as the determiner of the meaning. The text as the determiner of the meaning. So what they would say a person that holds this view would say that after a biblical writer writes down the passage, writes down the book, writes down the scripture, that at that point he loses total control over it. That he wrote it down, but once it's, once it's written, once it's on the paper, once the words have been spoken, once the words have been written, they are no longer under the influence, they are no longer under the control of, of, the, uh, of the writer. People that hold this view would say, we need just to let the text breathe. We need to let it breathe. We need, we need to let the words have some air. We need, to, we need to give them some space, right? Like, it just sounds good. You know, it kind of has a hippie sound to it, you know? Like, let's just let it breathe, bro. Some righteous meanings in there, bro. We just got to let it saturate, man. Let it marinate for a minute, you know? And, and you can kind of hear, you know what I'm saying? You, you know the people. And, uh, and so, whoever, they got their VW van with their stickers, you know? Um, but so they would say... That we just got to let it breathe. And so what they would say is, is that the words themselves are autonomous of the writer. That if we were to take the book of Romans, Paul, we know, wrote the book of Romans. And we were to take the book of Galatians, we know that Paul wrote the book of Galatians. And Galatians is kind of like the cliff notes to the book of Romans. So like, if you, you know, Romans is a pretty dense book, and you kind of, somebody give me some cliff notes, like go to Galatians, right? But we also know that because of that, and because they have the same author, and because they cover a lot of the same things, that if there's something that's unclear in Romans, we might be able to go to Galatians and get a little clarity on it. We might be able to use Galatians to help us interpret Romans. Or Romans being a bit more robust, if we go to something that's just kind of highlighted in Galatians, it may be covered in detail in Romans. And so we can go to Romans and be able to use Romans to help us interpret Galatians, right? But if the text stands alone, that's irrelevant. If the text stands alone, then Galatians doesn't help us understand Romans, and Romans doesn't help us under- interpret Galatians, because who cares if they were written by the same God? They mean something different. They just live on their own. They just breathe on their own. They just exist on their own. So what a person that holds this view would believe, that if, if Paul came limping in here, and Paul would have had a limp, all right? You understand Paul's health was not good. Paul, Paul was beaten up a lot. Paul was stoned a lot, imprisoned, uh, you know, uh, hit with canes, all that kind of stuff. So, so if Paul were, were to limp in here, and we were to say, all right, Paul, what does Romans mean? And Paul says, well, Romans would mean, well, we, the person that holds this view would respond back to you. Well, Paul, 
thank you for sharing your view. That's very nice of you. But Paul, it really doesn't matter what you think. It really doesn't matter what you say. Because your words, these, these words are no longer your words. These words stand on their own. So Paul, give us some space. Let the text breathe. And don't be trying to pollute our minds with what you say it should mean. Because we don't really care, Paul. We just want to we, we enjoy it. We want to soak in it, you know. Now, this sounds crazy, doesn't it? This sounds crazy. And you're thinking, like, what kind of people think like this? And I would tell you our Supreme Court. <laughs> All right? Because what, what is, so that now there, there's two different views of the Constitution now, right? You have one that is a constructionist view. And for the life of me, I cannot remember what the other one is called. I think it is literally called like a living view or something like that. So you have the constructionist, and the constructionists believe that you should go back to the framers. And what did the framers mean when they wrote the interpret when they wrote the Constitution? What was it that they intended for it to mean? And what they meant back then is what it should mean today. But those who hold the other view hold that the Constitution is a living document, that the Constitution is an evolving document, a maturing document. So as the society matures, as the society changes, that the Constitution should change. That what it meant back in the 1770s isn't necessarily what it means now in the 2010s. That now it means something different than it meant down there but just because the world's different. And since the world is different, the Constitution has to be different. So it doesn't really matter that when the framers put it in there about the Second Amendment, that's not necessarily what the Second Amendment has to mean today, right? Just because they put it, this in the First Amendment then doesn't mean that's what the First Amendment has to mean now. That this thing evolves, this thing shifts, this thing grows and changes over time. This is a view that the Catholic Church really seems to uphold of the Bible, right? That's why there is a pope. One of the reasons is one of the reasons that there is a pope is the pope helps to adjust the Bible to the times. The pope helps to kind of fit the Bible so that it stays relevant. So the Bible is constantly adapting, and so the pope can give a new interpretation of a text. And so right now we see Saint Francis doing this uh, at a rate that is faster than perhaps any pope that we've had in a thousand years. Right now, uh, Francis is, is softening the stance toward um, priesthood marriage. Right now, Pope uh, Francis is softening the stance of the church toward homosexual marriage. Right now, the pope is softening the stance on the sanctity of life. And so you see them kind of softening their stance, not because it's what the because of the, what the Bible says, but because culture is mandating they do so. And so they believe necessarily that the Bible must evolve, that the Bible must grow, that the Bible must mature. Now, if all of us are honest about it, the disconnect of logic here is really pretty remarkable, right? Like, as if little characters that are strung together to form words can in and of themselves have life like that doesn't even make sense to us right like we understand that those that a j is just a character on a page like a j does not contain life a j does not contain in and of itself some ability to to determine what it should mean that it's the author that assigns that j in the greater word of a j-e-s-u-s -S, right jesus and the 
what that, what he intended to communicate with that is what matters, right? So, to me, that one is the most difficult to, uh, to understand. The second, my, my, uh, the second way our interpretive principle that we see, our interpretive philosophy that we see, is the reader as the determiner of the, fle- of, of the text. So here's what the, the people that hold this view believe, that when the author writes the text, the text kind of goes dormant. You know, like right now, a lot of our grass is just dormant. And eventually, as the temperatures heat up and the sun comes out and the frost freaking stays away, so I don't have to keep covering up my plants with trash bags, uh, like when that stays away, then the grass is going to start turning green. It's going to actualize the grass, and the grass is going to come alive, and it's going to green up and, ha- and, and ha- be filled with life, right? So people that hold this view, they understand that the words, once they're written down by the author, go dormant. They just lie there asleep. And then until then when the reader comes along, the reader is able to actualize the text and give the text some meaning. So the text in this context can actually have as many different as many different readers as it does uh, as many different meanings as it does readers. Now this really gets to the essence of postmodern thought. You guys realize we, we now live in the postmodern era, all right? And the po- postmodern thought says that you don't say what's truth for me, I don't say what's truth for you, we all determine our own truth. We all determine our own right. We all determine what is good and what is wrong, what is not good, and that can even shift within ourselves as we grow as people, as we change as people, then our truth changes and our truth grows and our truth evolves. So now, tonight, we probably have 30 or 40 people in here, and so we could read Matthew 19 again, and if you have this philosophy of interpretation, then you could say that we have 30 or 40 different understandings of what this Bible, what this text means, and this text can, in fact, mean 30 or 40 different things. And so that causes the text to be reflective of the values of the day. So that so so you'll see people this really didn't even come onto the scene until like the 1700s. So this has been around 3-400 years like you guys understand for the first 1600 years of the church's history like there was no question who determined the meaning of the text like, all of this is modern thought you know we don't think of the 1700s as being recent but those are kind of in our neighborhood you know like they're in our subdivision that's pretty contemporary and so all of these things are only 3 or 400 years old that means that's very 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 young in the context of a 2000 year old church or a 3500 year old book okay so for 1600 years this was unquestioned over the last three or four hundred years, people have started thinking, well, maybe I determine what this means. Maybe I, can, maybe I can come to Matthew 19 and I can ask the question, what does this mean for me? What does this mean to me? How, what, how do I interpret this? Okay, so what happens is as culture shifts, these things shift. Now, this really was popularized, as you might can imagine, during the 1960s, right? Then during the 60s, it was all about individual. It was all about, I'm going to do my thing. Nobody's going to tell me what to believe. Nobody's going to tell me, you know, so you, so you had the, the hippie movement and all of those things that kind of come on and, and all of the, the liberation movements and all of those things. And so this view is really popularized. And if you go back and you see the scholarship of that day, it's really popularized by that day. And so it would be influenced by, by uh, homosexual thought, by communist thought, by 
feminist thought, by uh, poverty, by wealth, by all of those things. But the assumption here is that every text, every one text can have many different meanings. All right. Now that's why I have to get on like my, my horse here, my little uh, hobby horse thing. I always point out that is why I hate, hate, loathe, despise. I try to think of another word that I can use. The question that has snuck into so many Bible studies and small group studies in our churches. Now, I think most of them are well-intentioned. Like, I don't think this is what they intend to communicate. But one of the most common questions that we hear now in Bible study, and one of the most common questions that is used in small groups in good churches, is what does this mean to you? What does this text mean to you? And you want to know the truth of it is? Who cares what it means to you? It's irrelevant what it means to you. Because you're a fool. That's why we go to the Bible, to help us in our foolishness, right? So it doesn't matter what it means to you. It matters what Paul meant when he wrote it. It matters what God meant when he, he breathed it into whoever wrote it down. Like That's what matters. It does not matter what this text means to you. It matters what God intends for it to mean, right? So a better question. Let me give you a better question. If you've ever said that in a, in a Bible study, I forgive you in my heart. Just right now, forgive you in my heart because I bet you were well-intentioned and you were just trying to get the ball rolling and discussion in groups is hard and awkward and difficult. So, like, grace to you, okay? But a better question would be, would be how does the meaning of this text apply to you? How does the meaning of this text apply to you? Or how should you respond to the meaning of the text? That, like, the application part is the term. Like it, we, we apply the text differently in our lives. Like the principle's the same, the text means the same, but the application shifts, right? So like, I, I'm dealing with things in my life that you're not dealing with, and you're dealing with things in your life that I'm not dealing with. So the same principle might help us in different ways. So that, that's a fair question, all right? But please, please, at the Iron City Baptist Church, don't ask people what the text means to them because it inadvertently teaches terrible hermeneutics because then people come to their Bibles when they're at home by themselves, trying to be good Christians, like trying to grow in the word, and they come to it and they say, all right, what does this mean to me? Well, this means to me that there are eunuchs that are born from birth, and obviously there are gay people from birth, and so God loves gay people, you know, or God does love gay people, but, but God approves of, gay, of the gay lifestyle, right? So, like, d- don't, don't do that, all right? So, all right, let's go to the final one, the one that I have upheld as the correct one, the author as the determiner of meaning, the author as the determining determiner of meaning. Like I said earlier, for 1,600 years in the church, all right, that's almost two millennia, the church understood that this is who determined the meaning of the text, that what Paul said, Paul meant, what Paul, Peter said, Peter meant, that what God spoke through those men at that time, he used their, their context their culture, their audience to help establish a meaning of the text which is still relevant to us today. So if we were to understand this interpretive principle and we were to go back to the thought that we had earlier and we were to go to a very difficult text like Romans chapter 9 and Paul was to limp back in here and he would say, man, don't, don't be hitting me with that stuff you got, you, that heresy stuff y'all brought last time. I don't want to be discarded like that. I imagine Paul was a pretty confrontational fellow. All right? uh, he, he tells us that he once rebuked Peter to his face. Okay? So, and he says it just like that. And I'm like, okay, Paul, we got the message, man. Uh, but if Paul were to come back in here 
And we were to go through Romans chapter 9, which is a very difficult text, and we were to say, all right, Paul, what does that mean? And Paul says, well, I can tell you exactly what I meant when I wrote that. I meant this, this, and this, and this. Well, that would settle it. Then there would be no more dispute. There would be no more question. Because if Paul is telling us what he meant when he wrote Romans chapter 9, that's what Romans chapter 9 means. Because Paul is the one who wrote it. Paul is the one who assigns to that text its meaning. Now, all of us would have to agree that this is the common sense mode, the, the common sense method of communication. That when you speak to your wife, you don't want her to, to say to your wife, I love you, and for your wife to say, well, let's just let those words breathe a minute. Let, let's, just, let's just let those words out there, and let's make sure that that's what the words want to mean. Let's make sure that, that's, what, that's what those letters, if they want to stay in that order. Let's just, let's just let those breathe a minute, and let's just, let's just soak in that for a second and let that be. All right? You don't want your wife to say, well, I've decided that the words I love you mean I hate you and I want a divorce. Right? Like, you don't want your wife to say, but to me what those words really mean is that I can go out and buy a new Lexus. You know, so, 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 so you, don't want, you don't want the reader assigning the te- meaning to the text. You don't want the text assigning the meaning to itself. You want those words to be received by your wife as you intended them to be, to communicate your affection to her, to communicate your, your, your uh, desire for her, to communicate your pleasure with her, to communicate how much she means to you and her value to you, right? Like, you want her to receive it that way. Think about how mad you get when somebody twists your words. Isn't that aggravating? Like, let me just say, like, as a person who kind of talks in front of people uh, every week, a lot of people, like, that's kind of my livelihood, depends on talking to people. It's really, really easy, frustrating when people take what you say and then take it and spin it like this, right? And it happens a lot. Like it happened, not, not in our church, we're, we're pretty good, but in, in the big picture, it happens a lot. And it's very frustrating when people say, I heard you say, but that's not what I meant. Like that's, that's not what I, we can go, let's go back, let's pull, the, let's pull the beautiful bean footage and let's go back to the tape, you know? And I, that's not what those words mean, you know? There's something about that that's very offensive to us, that's very frustrating to us. And if, our, if, if we're talking to somebody that's always twisting our words, that's usually somebody we just stop associating with, isn't it? That's somebody that we stop talking with because we believe that person to be dishonest. Now, think about how God must feel when we take his word and we reassign and reinterpret it to mean something that's better for us. Think about how God must feel when we take the words that he has breathed into his apostles and then written down, preserved over through, through dead people, that people have given their lives so that the word can be preserved, handed it down to us from one generation to the next generation to the next generation, only for us to take it and say, well, I'll tell you what this means to me. No, no. What did God mean when he wrote it? What did God mean? That's what has power. That's what has life. 
That's what can deliver our souls from hell. That's what can change our families. That's what can change our hearts. That's what is powerful, more sharper than a two-edged sword. Like That is what doesn't return void. That is what brings us delight. That is what brings us relationship with Christ. Like That is. Don't change it. Everything is at stake. Don't manipulate the word. Don't alter the word. Don't reinterpret the word. Come to the word being willing to be won over to a position that you don't currently hold if the word says it. See, sometimes as Christians, we have good intentions, but we have a view on something that is kind of, it all makes sense in our minds. And we really believe that that's what the Bible says, but we can't say for certain what the Bible says because we've never really studied it very much. And so we go to the Bible to prove our view. That's the wrong approach to the Bible because what happens is is we begin to project into the text what the text should say. We begin to tell the Bible what it should say. And we can find, you can take enough verses and string them together to make them say really whatever you want to say. We've already seen a guy use it to affirm homosexual marriage. And we have to go to the Bible and we have to humble ourselves before it. We have to go to our our Bibles and submit ourselves to it and say, what do you actually say? What do you actually say? Is that really what I've always believed? Or do I need to believe something new? Do I need to believe something different? Don't let me go to the Bible to prove myself right. Let me go to the Bible so that the Bible can tell me what is right and I can believe that. And I can adopt that view. And I can uphold the glory and the value of that. Even if it's hard for me. Even if it's tough for me. Let me just commit myself that in those hard things, that I'm just going to do everything in my power to, to mine the depths of the word until I see the glory in it. Until I see the grace and the goodness and the power and the majesty of God in it. Like I'm just, Even though it's hard, I'm just going to keep pressing into it until I can see the glory in it. And I'm going to let that reshape my mind. I'm going to let that reshape my views and let, let that reshape my thinking. So you can think again about the Supreme Court and the Constitution. If you have a view that, that the framers, the original authors and wrote, wrote, who wrote the Constitution, if they are the ones that assigned the meaning to the Constitution, then it does not matter what your worldview is. It does not matter if you are liberal or if you are conservative. It does not matter if you uh, affirm homosexual marriage or don't affirm homosexual marriage. It does not matter if you are pro-gun or anti-gun. Those things are irrelevant. The only thing that matters is what did they intend for it to mean. What did they intend for it to mean? And we can vote it down. We can vote an amendment. But we can't change what it means. It means what it means because they said what it means. And that is, should be the same approach that we go to our Bibles with. Now, as a word of warning, one of the things that people can do sometimes, again, well-intentioned, like with goodwill, try to go to the Bible, and, and they hear that, and they say, yes, I agree with that. That's 100% right. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to go in and I'm going to read every word in its most literal form and I'm going to take every literal word of the Bible as literally as possible. All right? Now, what's the problem with that? 
God did not intend for every word in the Bible to be taken literally. There are some forms of speech in the Bible that are spoken with exaggeration. There are some communication methods, just like you and I. Like, like if I tell you that I'm on fire, I don't mean that I am literally on fire. I mean that I have just, I have just hit like three drives straight down the middle, right down, man, longer than normal. You know, like, like my golf game is on fire. But I'm not on fire, right? So I don't mean for you to take me literally. I mean for you to, I mean to communicate a certain, a certain truth to you. And that's true in the Bible. Let me give you a couple of examples. Luke 14, 26. Luke 14, 26. Let's just turn there and read it together. It's a hard passage. And we shouldn't use this, by the way. And we're going to talk about this a lot more when we get into interpretive principles. We, can't even use, we can even go too far this way and use it to soften difficult text. But we'll, we'll get there someday. All right, Luke 14, 26 says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, I love Megan Hale. I, I, I love her a lot. So does that mean that I am not a disciple of Jesus because I don't hate my wife? No, the Bible is not intended to be taken literally there. See, love-hate was, was idiomatic language. It means it was used as an expression of speech in that day to show how much greater one love was than another. And so what Jesus does there in speaking is he talks about the greatest loves that you have in this world. The greatest loves that we know of in the world are the love that we have in a marriage, the love that we have toward our parents, the love that we have toward our children, the loves that we have in our families. And so what he is saying there is that our love for him should be so, so far beyond those that those loves, as great as they are, almost look like hate. So we can't, so we don't take that literally. We take that to communicate from Jesus what Jesus intended for it to communicate. John 6, 56. Let's turn there and read that verse. John 6, 56 says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So are we supposed to literally 2,000 years later be chewing on the flesh of Jesus? Of course not. We're not to take that literally. Those words were never intended to be taken literally. They are to communicate to us how we abide in Christ and Christ in us, that we are inseparable. It's the identity that we have in Christ that we're talking about right now in visual theology in our Sunday school classes, right? You can think about in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, you should gouge it out. If your right arm causes you to sin, you should cut it off. That it's better to be without an eye. It's better to be without an arm than it is to sin. Now, have any of you ever sinned with your right hand? And all of you still have one, right? It's th there's a reason that Jesus' disciples weren't known as the pirates, Right? Because they understood that when Jesus was saying, he was communicating how seriously we should take our sin. That Jesus was not telling us to literally gouge our eyes out. And there have been movements of Christianity throughout the history that have done things like that. 
But Jesus was using figures of speech to drive home the truth that we would take our sin incredibly serious. So we can't overreact to this and go to the blood moons and take them completely literally, right? We can't overreact to this and go to any number of passages because we can take that and that can do as much damage as it can undermining the authority of Scripture, right? All right, so the big question is, if the meaning is what the author intended when he wrote it to, the group, to a group of people 2,000 years ago, how does that apply to us today and how does it speak to the issues of our day that were not even thought of then? So, we know that the Bible never brings up heroin, right? The Bible doesn't address heroin. The Bible doesn't address LSD. Um, The Bible doesn't address crack cocaine. Now, all of us would say that good, faithful Christian people should probably just steer clear of heroin. I mean, is there anybody that would object to that? All right, we're kind of all in unity on that. How is it that we could say from the Bible that we should steer clear of heroin? That's where we go to the Bible and we say, what does it say and how does that truth apply to us today? So in Ephesians 5.18 it says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So does that mean that all it's talking about is wine? So I can get drunk with, with vodka, and I can get drunk with bourbon, and I can get, I can get stoned out of my mind with heroin, As long as I don't get drunk on wine, I'm cool, right? That's a Pharisee move. That's a Pharisee move. We know that that is teaching a principle, right? That that is teaching a principle. Do not take into your body that which will lower your inhibitions and decrease your ability for godliness. Decrease your likelihood of godliness. Do not take, take in that which will cause you to perhaps sin against the Lord, right? So, so, yes, that would apply to vodka, right? Yes, that would apply to heroin. Yes, that would apply to cocaine, right? Like, we can go down the list here, right? So, so it's taking the scriptures, and it's taking what they mean when they were written, and now taking and applying that meaning to today's context, all right? Thank you all so much. Let me pray for us, and we will be finished. Heavenly Father, Help us to interpret your word rightly. Lord, don't let us go to the Bible and make it say what we want it to say. Don't let us go to the Bible with our minds made up. Lord, instead, let us go to the Bible and let the Bible make up our minds. Let the Bible shape our thinking. Let the Bible shape our worldview. Lord, let us go and see what is it that you intended to say from the beginning that you found so important, that you preserved it for us to give us life and hope and joy and redemption thousands of years later. Lord, again, we thank you for the grace that we find in your word and that you care enough for us to tell us what you need for us or what you have for us to know so that we can walk with you in joy and security. I pray blessings over each of those that are here tonight, that you would use them, work in them, and continue to use them as salt and light for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.